0: In years past, you don't like an article, what you do is you write another article. And there's many examples in some of the, um, you know, the lions of legal theory where it's a response to so-and-so. And there's a series of articles and they're wonderful. I fear that that's no longer the practice. The practice is to attack and to silence and to de-platform. And that's something that I'm extremely worried about in Sato Voce. Um, a lot of other feminists and other um, academics are concerned about, but they're even too fearful to say that that's a concern. So that's something that I wonder about.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Love Council. I'm Sean Robichaud, and this episode we interviewed university of new brunswick faculty of law member carrie frock last year march 2019 i made my way out there and interviewed uh, several faculty uh, as well as spoke to the law school uh, things like marketing and business and podcasting actually and it was a great time out there but sadly it's taken me this long to finally get around to getting these episodes released uh, as you probably noticed it's been quite a hiatus since our last of council episode and as you can probably hear the formats changing a little bit and instead of starting off with the boilerplate welcome to of council and what it's all about I hope most of you know what it's about at this point and uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit uh, before each uh, podcast if you want to fast forward through this part and get right into the guests by all means but um, I'm hoping that this can be an opportunity to answer questions we may have from our listeners. So if you have a question, you can email us at ofcouncil uh, at roboshowlaw.ca. Carrie Frock is highly regarded as a champion of feminist rights. Uh, in this episode, she talks about her time that she spent at LEAF acting as intervener counsel before the Supreme Court of Canada and why others should be encouraged to consider participating with LEAF and similar organizations and the change that can come from it. She also discusses her transition from private practice into academics and some of the obstacles that she and others face in trying to make that movement or over. Uh, we also talked about the controversy surrounding Bill 62 in Quebec, and keep in mind this episode was recorded uh, back in March of 2019, so a lot of the things that we were talking about at that point Um, were predictive. And in retrospect, um, you can see some of the insights that uh, Professor Frock had as they they unfold. But there's still a lot of things to be settled. And she talks about how this particular legislation, in her view, um, is highly discriminatory against uh, sexual equality. And it's something that, in her argument, the notwithstanding clause may not be able to implement over. And lastly, we talk about the unique strengths of her law school where she's at at university of new brunswick and the specific attention it offers its students so overall this is a really interesting conversation i think you'll enjoy it and with that i take you to carrie frock on this episode of love council So, how did your career in law start?
0: Well, initially, um, when I was in high school, um, I I think I was galvanized to be a feminist, and I think my feminism led to my uh, legal career, so... I was very profoundly affected when um, I saw the images on television from uh, the Montreal massacre and was, uh, you know, thought to myself, you know, there's something wrong here. There's women aren't being treated the same way men are in society. I have to do something about that. Um, um, so, so there's that, um, there's also more trivial, uh, parts of that. I was a aficionado of street legal and I saw, (laughs) um, Osgood hall, the, the degrees on the wall. And I thought, wow, I want to go there. So, (laughs) so there's a serious side, but also, you know, uh, more, uh, funny anecdotal side to, to my uh, path to law school, I guess, in terms of why I wanted to um, depart from private practice and get into academia. Um, again, there's there's two sides to that. I, I fell in love, so I uh, was working in a firm in Regina. Um, my partner-to-be was from Ottawa, so I decided to depart for Ottawa and, and um, pursue a master's degree. Kind of did a little bit of sideline because Canadian Bar Association heard I was coming to Ottawa and uh, approached me to work full-time. So I did that for, for about a decade. Um, but really, I just wanted to... Um, see law at more of a bird's eye view. Um, after about eight years in practice, I, I sort of felt like I was seeing the same cases over and over again, just with different faces. Mm-hmm. Um, there were topics that I was really curious about pursuing um, in a more uh, academic form, so that I could really dig deep into the the workings of law to find out why things were working for certain people and weren't. It represented a lot of women and family law. Um, so, of course, you're you're bumping up against a lot of systemic issues for women in society, women caregiving, um, division of labor in the home, um, what women earn versus what men earn. So those were the things I was really curious about. Um, I also did a secondment to LEAF for about 15 months, and that's what really um, I got the bug to... Um, you know, investigate constitutional law, and I was really interested in uh, in pursuing that. Um, I represented uh, Leaf as junior counsel in a case called Faulkner, which was about um, single mothers on social assist- social assistance having their um, payments reduced because they had um, um, boyfriends living in the home, and because I was junior counsel. I got the um, right that was the more peripheral right in that case, which was Section 7, um, how women's liberty and security of the person was being affected. So that was really where I got curious about the interaction of equality and other rights in the Charter. So there's lots of feminists doing lots of work on the equality right, but I was really interested in the interaction between those two or, or different rights, what I called multiple rights claims in my work.
1: Let me ask you, um, with the Legal Education uh, and Action Fund, um, what uh, would you say to uh, a young lawyer who wants to get involved in LEAF?
0: Um, i would say it's a really great opportunity to learn the workings of uh, what it's like to represent interveners to um, look at what their interests are versus the interest of you know a, a regular client that's going through the court system um, at leaf of course we're not we're always looking three cases ahead so it's It's about presenting arguments in this case, and obviously you want the court to accept your arguments, but it's also trying to anticipate where the law might go in the future. So you're trying to make arguments not only in relation to that set of facts, but to ensure that there's no unintended consequences for, again, the the second or third case into the future. So you're looking at a long-term perspective.
1: So how did that make you uh, a better lawyer and better academic today, your involvement with LEAF?
0: Oh, it's both LEAF and private practice. I always refer to it as a well that I'm continually drawing from in my um, academic work, work, both you know as a professor and as a scholar. So I'm always thinking about um, how the w- law is working for people on the ground. Um, my work has a theoretical basis, but I don't view my work as being completely grounded in theory. If it doesn't help actual people or actual women, I don't think I've done my job as a lawyer and an academic. So I think that that's really, you know, I'm, I'm really informed by how courts would look at um, different arguments, how the um, the law would work for different people in real life rather than it being something, you know, kind of ephemeral, you know, let's just play around with theory.
1: It seems to me that a lot of uh, legal academics were set in that role from the beginning, you know, from a very early point, um, you see a lot of academics will go in, uh, do their masters and then their PhD in law. Um, not everyone, of course, but your path uh, has a lot of this practical experience. Um, what would you say to someone trying to move from private practice into academics? Because what I've heard from uh, other academics is it is quite hard to do. So did mm-hmm. did you find um, a, a way to achieve that despite the odds?
0: Well, what was fascinating to me is there seems to be some sort of Um, reluctance to hire people in academia that have um, an experience in in private practice, not necessarily at UNB, because I think UNB has a long legacy of um, ensuring people are practice ready is the quote. So they're, they're very interested in people that have prior experience, actually working in law. Um, Other places, not so much. It's seen as a mark that you aren't really serious about academia, that perhaps you're a bit of a dilettante. Um, So it always fascinated me why that would be the case, because I don't think you would see that in other professional schools, where there would be some sort of prejudice against a professor of medicine who had practiced as a doctor. So I was always curious about why and how that developed. Yeah.
1: So what would you say... Uh, Well, let me put it another way. What could academics learn learn from practitioners, and what could practitioners learn from academics?
0: I think what practitioners could learn from academics is really, I know there's been a huge debate about getting away from the billable hour, and I've really found that in the transition from practice to academia, being freed from the billable hour has just been such a blessing. (laughs) Um, I know that a lot of lawyers hate it too. And I think that finding out a way to monetize your knowledge and your skill without having to rely on 0.1 of an hour is something that that maybe um, if people have a chance to experience that, they would find creative ways to, to look at alternatives, and I know that there's been talk about different billing models where you bill based on results or you bill based on chunks of work. I think that's something that the profession is going to have to start looking at with more seriousness, especially as new generations of lawyers come with different expectations. Um, about what um, academics could learn from practitioners, um, I really do think that there should be more contact between practitioners and academics. I really think that um, in ac- academia, we need reality checks sometimes in terms of what work we're doing and how um, that's going to benefit people. Um, I'm constantly thinking about that in my work, and I think that comes from private practice. Thinking, you know, what is realistic as far as um, Jack Balkin calls it, off the wall and on the wall arguments, and how you have to keep on chipping away um, to make off the wall arguments become something that the court is more willing to accept. But it's incremental change. So um, I think that practitioners could assist academics in in being strategic in that way and trying to move the law.
1: Now, obviously, you were able to accomplish a a lot in private practice for individuals. And a lot of that goes unnoticed, because individuals are clients, and they often don't want their cases publicized. But what do you think you've been able to achieve in academics for the advancement of law, perhaps in a broader sense?
0: yeah oh man. that's <laughs> that's a huge question. Um, and I've just started out in academia. This is my my second year as a full-time professor. so i don't I'm not really sure actually what
1: uh, let me rephrase, what are you striving to accomplish in academics?
0: My main focus has always been women's rights. Um, And what I look at is a very um, uh, little known uh, area of constitutional law about equal rights in Section 28 of the Charter. And it's something that women fought extremely hard to get in the Charter. It's kind of one of the magical things that happened in 1981, where average women came from all across Canada to lobby for the change and they actually got it. So that's a totally fascinating historical um, uh, event in Canada that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, But Section 28 itself um, didn't get a lot of attention initially. Initially, it was used extremely poorly by judges to roll back um, rights for women. And then it kind of disappeared into the ether. So what I really want to accomplish is to um, inject that into the consciousness of law, of courts, to look at how um, we interpret rights. Does legal doctrine, um, is it actually neutral, as we all think it is, or is it gendered in the sense that it privileges claims that men are more likely to make versus women? Mm -hmm. So that is my ultimate goal. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that some people are, are picking up my work. It's mostly um, students and academics at this point, but hopefully, um, you know, like I say, it's that matter of keeping on chipping away to see what um, what will break down over time.
1: Well, I want to talk to you about your work um, because, uh, as I understand, it's it's sort of um, trying to explain where we've come as far as feminism, where we're at, and then what you've just been, just been describing, where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to uh, ask you a question specifically um, that uh, you made in relation to the Quebec pay equity law. Um, I, I I believe you said, quote, we take two steps forward and one step back, um What I've said in my own research is that women have disproportionate access to charter rights, because if you look at their cases before the Supreme Court, they have very few wins and lots of losses. So what specifically are you referring to here um, well maybe not specifically but generally and, and maybe an example
0: right um, I, I guess specifically um, I do an appendices in my dissertation where I actually list all the cases that women women have won at the the Supreme Court and I think there's about five of them and then the laundry list of the ones that they've lost including some pretty heartbreaking loss losses um, like Louise Goslin who went to the Supreme Court um, uh, because uh, Quebec instituted a workfare program and um, drastically slashed welfare rates for young people under 30s. And it had a particular impact on women. Um, Louise Goslan herself had a very difficult life, um, was subject to sexual violence. Um, so that was, the court said that this was not um, discrimination. This was dignity enhancing because it required people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, go out and participate in workfare programs and get work. Um, Quebec ultimately saw the light after that case and and um, de- uh, discontinued that program, but with no help from the court. Um, so those are those are the types of cases. Um, Hodge is another case um, where um, Betty Hodge. She was an abused woman in a, co- a common law relationship, um, alcoholic spouse. Um, he um, abused her, so they separated, and he subsequently died very shortly thereafter. The question was under the Canada Pension Plan is a separated common-law spouse, still a spouse for the purpose of getting survivor's benefits. Married separated spouses still were, but the court said, well, Betty Hodge, the minute that she left and had an intention not to return, she's no longer a spouse. There's no discrimination. She's a non-spouse, so we can't, there's nothing in law that's known as a separated common-law spouse, so she's put out in the cold. So it's those kind of cases that are pretty heart wrenching. And to be frank, um, the violence in those cases get a pretty light touch by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So those are the cases that, that I find quite disturbing. Um, in terms of Central des Syndicats, the, the two cases on pay equity that just came up from the Supreme Court, um, the one thing I found very heartening, Is these kind of rigid, formalistic kind of analyses that we saw from the court in the past with respect to equality? And everyone knows the kind of tortured path that equality law has been down. I think we're on permutation number five as far as the doctrine and the test that um, people have to meet um, to um, found a, a, an equality rights violation. Um, the court and Justice Abella in those cases took a more flexible approach and really looked at um, Central was about um, delay in pay equity for women that are in female-dominated workplaces because they don't have a male comparator. So there was something like, like a six- or seven-year delay and no retroactivity um, versus women that did have male comparators and got pay equity right away. Um, the companion case was about some of those um, uh, more detailed aspects of Quebec pay equity, Um, with respect to um, um, a little bit of problems with retroactivity and um, the posting of um, uh, discrepancies in pay after after audits. So in those cases, um, the court really took an approach that almost is about, um, are these provisions perpetuating gender hierarchy? Are these perpetuating the devaluation of women when it comes to employment in society, when it comes to their work? Versus, well, are these women being treated like men? And there's no real comparison that you can do because they're in female-dominated workplaces. So the court took uh, a much broader approach to interpretation, a much more flexible the ones that get at the actual issues that women are facing. So that was the good part. The bad part is um, under the the section one justification. They said, "Well, the problem was really hard, and it took a long time to come up with solutions. So we think it's justifiable that there was a delay in pay equity, and didn't and kind of sidestep the issue of well, why didn't the legislation apply uh, provide for retroactivity?" Um, so. It, kind of giveth with one hand and taketh away, take away with the other, which has been um, the history of, of women's litigation at the Supreme Court in a lot of cases.
1: So let me ask you, when you're looking at these cases, and um, perhaps in between the lines, the substrata of what's really going on here, what sort of critical analysis um, methodology are you trying to apply so that you can sort of expose what is really happening as it relates to uh, f- uh, feminism?
0: Yeah, well... I guess at a very basic level, what the Charter did with respect to Section 15, the Equality Right, and Section 28, which was about gender equality, is it's trying to disrupt the balance of power in society. So it's trying to um, take um systems of um, discrimination, sexism, oppression, and trying to uproot those and change them. So they're transformative provisions. Um, and there's no question that that's what it was meant to do. It was meant to transform society. The politicians talked about it. The women involved with um, revi- revising sec- Section 15 and instituting Section 28 talked about it constantly. Um, but when it came to the courts, the courts um, seemed to um, want to make nibbling around um, the status quo, but not really wanting to confront the heart of what inequality is in society. And so I think that's why we get all these complicated permutations of what equality means, because if the right was doing what it was intended to do, then there would be widespread social transformation. The court is always concerned with issues of legitimacy and how far it can go. It was given um, uh, the mandate to transform, but I think it's worried about what that would actually mean um, when it comes to deciding cases and its own legitimacy.
1: I want to ask you about uh, an op-ed piece you wrote about Quebec's proposed Charter of Values, which prohibits conspicuous religious symbols for provincial civil servants and contains other requirements uh, purportedly relating to the removal of religion from the provision of government services um, and even some non-governmental services like daycare. So and perhaps this is an example of it, maybe the substrata, but uh, tell me what, what's really going on here from your perspective and how does it relate to feminism?
0: Sure. So I wrote that um, op-ed about an earlier permutation that the the party québécois was floating about state neutrality, that's come into law subsequently in Bill C six uh, Bill sixty two in Quebec, and there's a specific section of that um, bill. That says that in order to receive um, public services and other related services that are in the Act, um, and in order to provide those services, your face um, can't be covered. So no matter what you might want to say about the rest of that bill, it's pretty obvious that that bill is about the hijab and the niqab. I would argue that the entire bill is really aimed at that, and a lot of it is is trying to um, cover up for that fact. Um, but where my research and my argument fits in is Um, it's pretty obvious in terms of how um, Section 28 is supposed to work with the notwithstanding clause. Um, There's already been one litigation foray with that um, bill where a Quebec judge said that this is so discriminatory, we're going to put a stay on it until you come up with some guidelines for religious accommodation. So there's already been kind of one chip at that. And subsequently, the government has said, well, if the court strikes it down, we'll just use the notwithstanding clause. Um, what my work shows is that if you have a law that's been shown to discriminate on the basis of sex, um, the notwithstanding clause is not accessible to you as a government. So whatever else you want to do, like there's enumerated um, rights that the notwithstanding clause applies to, but it doesn't apply to Section 28. And it's very um, apparent from the history that All the politicians involved understood that you can't touch sex equality and sex discrimination with Section 33. Now, then you get into the issue about, well, does this discriminate on the basis of sex? And it's pretty obvious that they're targeting religious women, that um, they're targeting uh, a gendered piece of clothing, um, and it furthers their disadvantage. There's been lots of um, increases in um, women who wear the hijab and the niqab being uh, targeted for um, people saying terrible things to them, even um, people trying to um, physically accost uh, them. Um, so there is a definite link there. It's pretty hard to say that that law isn't furthering their disadvantage, especially when it comes to trying to access government services.
1: So where do we stand now on the latest of that law, and where do you think it's what's going what's to happen?
0: Um, Well, I haven't, uh, I I don't know exactly what's been happening with it right now. I think it's still before the courts in terms of um, the guidelines that the government has recently put out um, to say when accommodation will happen. And it's like this complicated list of stuff about, you know, whether or not we need it for communication, or whether someone has to uncover for security, and you know, the nature of religious belief and whatnot. I just think that it's an unnecessary law that's um, been instituted for uh, sex discriminatory and uh, racially discriminatory reasons. So... Um, that's the question is what are the courts going to do with it now that we have this set of guidelines and how is the government going to respond and are we into this um, issue where we have to interpret section 33 which hasn't got a lot of play in the law so far.
1: We've heard as of late um, a lot of posturing about feminism in politics, where, um, you know, we have right now um, a prime minister who's self-proclaimed feminist, um, and a lot of people are critical of that. And I understand that you wrote an article um, for uh, the CBA National in an opinion piece, and there you quote um, said, Uh, Like he did by, quote, wearing his father's buckskin at a 2016 summer event, we think Trudeau is following in his father's well-trodden masculine footsteps. He's mirroring a decades-old family tradition of bringing sexy back by (laughs) playing Canada's uh, romantic leading man. And no, that's not necessarily great news for women seeking or holding leaderships. And you further wrote, Justin Trudeau's gender performance fits within existing frames that implicitly raise barriers to women seeking the lead. so what, what do you mean by that? Um,
0: well, that was a, a really fun op-ed to write. I wrote it with my uh, friend and colleague, Rebecca Bromwich. And what we were responding to is uh, colleagues of ours um, from University of Ottawa and Carleton um, wrote this piece um, very early on in, in Trudeau's Mandate saying that, well, there's different kinds of masculine performances that politicians are um, uh, uh, kind of taking on. So Harper represented a certain kind of paternalist masculinity, but... Justin Trudeau represents something completely new. He represents um, this kind of subordinated masculinity. And what they meant by that is a, a, a male politician that is seen as having some feminine type of traits. Um, Rebecca and I went through the historical data of uh, Globe and Mail was one of our, our main data points looking at references to Pierre Trudeau. And we found that the references were really similar. You know, kind of the the cosmopolitan guy that's um, kissing willing women on the campaign trail. I think we even found them doing the same yoga pose, the the peacock pose. I think um, Trudeau, the elder, did that on occasion. So, and even the words used to describe um, the elder Trudeau in the media about this cosmopolitan, flamboyant type of of. Uh, good-looking male politician. And what we said is, no, uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't represent a new kind of masculinity. He's playing off the same tropes of the young virile male politician that we've always had, and that you see in the United States with John F. Kennedy, same kind of thing. So we said that this isn't something new. This is something that we know well and Trudeau, um, the elder, did some great things for women in terms of decriminalizing contraception, um, uh, reducing um, restrictions, although not eliminating them on abortion. But there were a lot of things that he didn't do for women. He didn't have gender parity in his cabinet um, by a long stretch um even when it came to looking at provisions in the charter he wasn't particularly interested in having a strong gender equality provision in fact he uh, Trudeau the elder found the women that were advocating kind of an annoyance um so number 1 this isn't new number 2 it doesn't necessarily mean um strides for women And um, if I can um, polish my own apple a little bit, I think that recent events are proving us right. Um, The way that Jody Wilson-Raybould was treated, that we don't know all of the details about that, Um, but um, her and her cabinet colleague, the the fact that both of them have felt it necessary to resign due to allegations of undue pressure for a minister of justice and attorney general in her office directing a prosecution. Um, that to me doesn't seem very feminist. If you look at some of the uh, other things that he's done, for example, providing um, uh, budgetary funding for sexual assault clinics and conferences on sexual assault. um, That's great. But why not give that money to the frontline women workers instead, instead of having it be like kind of the flashy shiny things have it be more women's organizations that haven't had core funding for oh i don't know over a decade now so i am concerned with this government that the that the um, focus is on the shiny things the symbols um we had viola desmond um the first black woman on our currency which is great which is something that is absolutely necessary we need those symbols i i appreciate having that versus um, the former government that thought that gender equality and um, uh, women's rights were something that we have, we have equal rights already, so we don't need to do anything about it. So I would rather have that. But there has to be substance that's below that. And I am not convinced that we've seen that yet. And I'm not convinced that that's materially different than previous governments that we've seen.
1: Hey, everyone. Before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms, which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest ebrief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website roboshowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting, wills, trusts and estate, litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, there's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating, and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content, and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. Are you concerned that the controversy that has happened and is still going on, really, uh, is going to um, put us in a position that's going to be rather contentious in the upcoming election? And if um, is that going to have a negative effect on where we go with with uh, women's rights?
0: Well, that's that's the rub. Is um, you know, you have uh, at least the optics if um, and, you know, as time will tell, the reality of an indigenous woman, first uh, minister of justice being treated poorly, that doesn't fit with the feminist brand. Um, on the other side, um, we have the other traditional ruling party, the conservatives, that, um, in great part have been no f- friend to women. Um, their feminism, it, to the extent that they have it, and I, you know, I, I don't take um, issue with um, some of the women in the progressive or the conservative caucus um, calling themselves feminists. But it seems like it's a feminism that isn't very deep. It's a feminism of let's just treat everyone absolutely the same. And women, you know, since you know, for decades have said that that's not sufficient in order to promote equality for women. Um, for example, we have different biological needs. We have the need for um, uh, employers and the government to take into account the reality of women doing the lion's share of work in the home and caregiving. um get, Canadian society benefits from that free labor of women like my mom, who's doing a lot of caregiving with my grandmother right now, that burden falls on women in society. So we have um, a, a feminist, quote unquote, government, that's been exposed to maybe not be so feminist, but we have another party that's antithetical to feminism. So where are we left? That's, that's the, I think, what a lot of feminists are feeling right now is where do we go with this?
1: So if, um, if one were to try and reconcile everything that's happening right now, um, not that it's anyone's obligation other than Justin Trudeau and his party, but what uh, advice might you give to uh, try and bring this around before the election to show that it's not just merely tropes and uh, inauthentic femininity uh, fe- feminism
0: um well a national child care par- policy would go a long way um it's something that the liberals have been promising that paul martin almost brought in but we still haven't seen it so you know uh, not to be trite but show us the money um if you want to uh, show that you're serious about this make serious policy commitments to issues that are important to women
1: Okay, so I want to move to teaching. Those are some great answers. Thank you for that. That That's a really complex issue, and I appreciate your um, opinions on that because um, it's a very very complex issue to unpack, and I think we can even see now with the media struggling with this, and especially as you say, we don't know the full picture. But um, I think as time goes on, I, um, I appreciate the... The views more towards healing than division, which seems to be <laughs> the objective of media as of late. Uh, I want to talk to you about your um, pedagogy. How do you approach um, students? What's your teaching style?
0: Well, I think that my approach is about collaboration. Um, I really see learning as a collaborative enterprise between um, the professor and the students. So, um, you know, I'm still wearing my water wings at this point because I'm a newbie professor. I've only been full time at it for a couple of years now, although I've taught before. Um, but that's what I'm trying to draw into my teaching. Um, lectures have their place. So I'm not saying that I don't do lectures. I do quite a bit of lecturing. But even within that, um, I do interactive poll everywhere where you can have students that are maybe quieter who can participate electronically. I do a lot of reflective posting where um, students and I are interacting online, um, some workshops shopping in the classroom, Um, especially with um, I just started teaching advanced constitutional law, and I tell people that it was almost not like not teaching, because I would go in, um, the class, uh, you know, I had a set list of topics that we could work on. The class had some input on what we did. And it's like, let's go just go and talk about law every, you know, every couple of days. And um, I really let them take charge of the class discussion. I tried not to be too interventionist. And I really got to know that our students have some very, um, uh, deep commitments to the theory of, of constitutional law they have lots of um, creative and interesting things to say so I learned uh, you know it's again trite but I learned a lot from the students I they've really advanced my thinking about a lot of the constitutional issues um, we even managed to convince ourselves of different positions that we started out with in terms of things like the carbon tax Um, The students vetted out, you know, the federalism aspects of that, and we managed to convince ourselves that it was probably constitutional, which is not where we started out. Um, So that's that's an example. Another one is um, we have students that are really taking charge of their own learning. Um, We have students, um, uh, three of them, uh, that... Uh, helped organize the National Law Needs Feminism Conference in Halifax. That just happened. Um, and they approached the associate dean about, well, let's turn this experiential learning into a course. So the three of them are working with me. They have a set reading list about um, feminist legal theory, and we meet every few weeks, and they talk about how the experience of organizing that course, or that uh, conference, rather, Fits into this feminist legal theory about what it means to do feminism in law, so you know, totally self-directed. They made the the syllabus, and I said, okay, let's do it. Um, so it's some. They said that some of their fellow students are like, "What you're getting course credit for this? Like organizing <laughs> a conference?" Um, but that's what we really want to instill in our students: is it's not just organizing the conference, the hard work. They'll, the the students themselves will disagree. They'll say that organizing the conference was really hard work too, but a lot of the hard thinking work is how to um, uh, characterize that experience theoretically in terms of what we know about what it's like to practice law as a feminist or, or any kind of feminist practice.
1: What do you think the faculty of law here at UNB does particularly well? Is there um, whether it's just a matter of pedagogy or or whether there's particular uh, professors that you think are just doing amazing work? What are you really proud of here?
0: Well, I was just talking about this to my husband the other day, because I think um, the one thing that we really do well is the individualized attention to the students. And what I mean by that is, you know, like I went to Osgoode Hall, I went to a, like a really big law school. And so I have some sense of what the differences are. Um, students that may be quieter, that might be more self effacing, that don't have their sharp elbows up to really make their presence known. um, I think those students risk being lost in the crowd at a lot larger um, law school. What we do well is being able to spot talent, even in students that aren't prepared to really um, put themselves out there is notice me. Um, Students that um, are quite quiet, we can still... Um, spot those students and direct them towards um, things that um, would serve them well as far as their talents, like clerkships, um, different academic opportunities, that kinds of things. So I think that there's an ethos here that you really are to take responsibility for your individual students' learning. It's not just about teaching the class. It's about being responsible to the student body as a whole. And I'm really proud of the fact that some of those very students that I was talking about, and I kind of look at myself as being one of those students back in law school, um, we've really, I think, done a, a good service for those students because we have that culture.
1: What are some of the challenges facing uh, academics right now in law?
0: Well, I think that one of the major challenges that academics are facing, and not just legal academics, is the issue of freedom of expression on campus. Um, It's something that I'm really concerned about. It doesn't keep me up at night necessarily, but it's something that I'm always um, careful about. Um, How... How much are we able to articulate our perspective without having the mob jump on us? Um, we've seen some instances of people publishing articles, and then the mob kind of coalesces and advocates that journal withdraw that article. Um, I think that there was a understood practice, um, in years past that if you don't like an article, what you do is you write another article. And, you know, there's many examples in, you know, sort of some of the, um, you know, the lions of legal theory where it's a response to so-and-so, and there's a series of articles and they're wonderful. Um, I fear that that's no longer the practice. The practice is to attack and to silence and to deplatform. And that's something that, um, I'm extremely worried about in sotto voce. Um, a lot of other, um, feminists and other, um, academics are concerned about. Um, but they're even too fearful to say that that's a concern. So that's something that, uh, especially me as an untenured professor, I, I, I wonder about.
1: I think this ties in well to my next question. That's with social media. So (laughs) uh, deep platforming and the mob. Um, I know you're on social media and and you're quite active on it. Um, What would you say about uh, academics um, being on social media? Do you think it's important? Uh, And what cautionary tales or or advice would you give uh, young academics perhaps getting on or even lawyers for that matter?
0: Well, and it's not just young academics, too. It's it's my students. Um, they're maybe one of the first generations where their online personality is going to follow them around forever. Um, that's daunting. Um, uh, for me, um, I have a social anxiety that manifests in a particular way, and the way it manifests is I hate social mixers. So for me, going to conferences and to try to connect with people that way is torture. Um and so where I find my people is really on Twitter. Um, so, you know, I'm a feminist originalist. So we have, you know, kind of my originalist buddies on Twitter that we can bounce things back and forth um, with other constitutional academics online. That's kind of where I found my community, where I um, can feel fulfilled that I can talk about these issues with. Um, the way that I'm careful about it is... I do have a Facebook, but it's locked down. I don't have students on my Facebook page. Um, I only talk about, um, on Twitter, kind of um, things that are of academic interest to me. Um, Periodically, I grouse about the fact that I can't get a doctor in New Brunswick, and that's kind of <laughs> like one of my pet sidelines on Twitter, sure. but mostly it's about constitutional law. So, right. so it's really been a benefit to me. It's allowed me to interact with people that I probably wouldn't. Um, be able to interact with in real life or wouldn't have the opportunity to. So especially, you know, we're in Atlantic Canada, um, you know, um, Toronto is the center of the universe, as we're we're all told. Um, so, you know, connecting up when you're a member of a small faculty to other people doing the same work is really important.
1: I want to ask you about um, some goal setting. Uh, are there any tips that you'd pass on to those who are trying to obtain the same degree of uh, output or excellence in practice or academics that you have. Do you set goals? Um Is there some way that you keep on track that has helped you over the years?
0: That's a good question. Um, and I know that you've uh, interviewed Charisma Mathen, and I'm amazed at her output. And she told me that she has very specific hours that she works. I admire that. I don't necessarily do that. Um, the thing that um, keeps me on track is there's things that I kind of feel this fire in my belly that they have to get out um, one of my most cited articles is with respect to uh, intersectionality theory and evolutions of intersectionality theory. And I remember feeling this fire about that article saying, I have to get this out now. It's really important. Um, Michael Marin and I just completed an article about um, originalism and the Como case that went to the Supreme Court, the Free the Beer case. Um, I felt kind of the same fire in my belly about that. Mainly, um, although not exclusively, because I felt that Mike's historical research on that point was super important and it was important that we get it out now. Um, So that's primarily what drives me is, and also, um, as I'm doing this week, um, talking about um, uh, gendered nature of federalism in the assisted reproduction case, someone telling me, you better get this article done this week, or that's it.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's a good uh, trait to have, because we certainly are in a day and age of we need this now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so what about, uh, outside of the professional life? Is there a particular, uh, thing that keeps you going that you're passionate about, whether it's a pastime or, um, a way to relax?
0: Um, well, I know you're
1: a big tea fan. Yes, You like tea, that's but beyond true.
0: that. Um, yeah, it's hard to say because I've had to give up some stuff like my poor ukulele because, um, as a, you know, trying to, um, get promoted and get tenure, um, you're very laser focused on, on getting the output, um, as you, as you mentioned. But I do like food and I have various food obsessions. I get obsessed about a particular food and then like I chase it down. So like, you know, what at one point last summer it was hollow hollow like the um the dessert so i went like looking in toronto for who served the best one and went and ate that what when, is halo halo? it's uh it's a filipino dessert that has like there's bits of like um candied fruit and custard and ice chips and yam and it's all kind of like halo hollow is mixed up right so it's all in this kind of mixture which is very cool you may and- have just
1: uh, cut down your supply with all the <laughs> listeners and all of a sudden sold out that- out across uh, Canada. Yeah.
0: So the, there's just different weird obsessions I get. I'm very interested in food. I'm really interested in what different cultures eat, what other cultures eat. The, the most fun activity for me is when I go to another country, going to a grocery store and seeing how people live. It's really about how people live. I'm, I'm, in, insanely curious about what other people's lives are like and i think that's what made me a lawyer too as i'm interested in stories right so that kind of just branches in to the the food genre how do people live
1: so my last question for you is this if you could change a supreme court of canada case or tweak it or just have the power of attorney general and were able to make a massive change in law what do you think it would be
0: oh man that's a,
1: <laughs> I, I you're asking the
0: all the tough questions today Um, you know, I think it would just be to set out a really clear test on Section 15 and say, we're never going to change this test. This is what it's going to be. Um, And that test would be more about what I was talking about before anti oppression, anti subordination, does this Provision perpetuate hierarchy, or does it um, uh, further equality and just have equality be based on a a standard rather than this um, idea that we have to compare people to each other and that you know we can't, um, as women or as disabled persons, aspire to something different than the non-disabled or men have? I think that's that's a dead end. So I would rather see us um, go more towards that direction. I'm really hopeful because of this Central case that the Supreme Court is going to go there. They just need a bit more of a nudge, I think.
1: Well, thank you very much, everyone. That was Carrie Frock, who's a professor here at the University of New Brunswick Faculty of Law, answering all the difficult questions <laughs> on an early Friday morning uh, at an em- empty faculty office. So thank you very much for being part of a council.
0: Thank you. This was fun.